Excuse me. Thank you, Ed. Thank you for leading us in worship. And if you will, please uh, take your scriptures and open them to chapter 32 of Genesis. There's a red pew Bible there that it's on page 32. Continue our, our work through the book of Genesis. Just to reset the context, Jacob is on his way to meet Esau. He has been called back by God from the north with Laban. Back to the promised land. He's headed to the promised land. He travels south on the eastern side of the Jordan. You can see on the map there. I think it's helpful to have a visual of this. The angelic host, if you remember in the, in the beginning of chapter 32, confronts him at the headwaters of the Jabbok River in Mahanim. I have it marked there. He then follows the Jabbok River Valley to the west towards the promised land. As, he is, as, he send, as he's doing that, he, he sends, his, and this is chapter 32, he sends those messengers to Esau, who's coming up from the south, to tell him to ingratiate himself to his brother who, who wants to kill him, or so it's thought. And he finds out that Esau is coming north with about 400 men. Fearing his brother, he prays a desperate foxhole prayer. We covered that last week. And he reaches a shallow crossing of the Jabbok River. And from there, he sends wave after wave after wave of gifts to his brother, if you remember. Of the goats and the sheep and the bulls and the rams, trying to appease his brother's anger. Hoping beyond all hope to ingratiate himself to his brother. As night falls... Jacob cannot sleep. And that's where we pick up in verse 22 of chapter 32. God's word says, The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabba. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the break of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen the face of God, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip 
on the sinew of his thigh. Father God, I pray that you will speak to your people through this word, through this preached word, this ordained manner that you have given us to convey your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been so scared of the future you can't sleep? Have you ever had something the next day that that keeps you awake at night? I've been blessed most of my life. I'm a sound sleeper, just a blessing from God. But I I can really look to, and perhaps this, this isn't a comfort to you, I can perhaps look to maybe a handful of nights that I really tossed and turned. I couldn't get to sleep because of what was coming. If you've had that experience, you know what Jacob is going through. His stomach is tied up in knots. That's Jacob's experience right here. He had tried all that he knew to appease his brother's anger. Kind and humble words through the messengers, prayers, gifts, yet he still lay awake, fearing that tomorrow his life is going to end. So he gets up and he sends his family and all his possessions across the river. He goes over there with them to the, to the south side of the Jabbok River and then he returns alone to the north side. Or so he thought. Suddenly a man, we later come to understand is, is God himself, tackles Jacob to the ground wrestles with him all night, finally displaces his hip, and Jacob still won't let him go until he blesses him. God then blesses him, but not before he changes his name and gives him a reminder of this experience. What's going on here? Enigmatic to you? What is God trying to tell us here? What are we to make of this? What's the Holy Spirit trying to teach us through these ten verses? i got to tell you, I struggled with that for a lot this week. What is the main point here? Then I read a little sentence by a great scholar named Sidney Gerdanus. And it unlocked for me what this text is about. The original context is the key to understanding this. Keep in mind that God was giving the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, to Moses in the wilderness as their what? Making their way to the promised land. Israel was a new nation just formed. And God is telling them about their history, about their origins, about their beginnings. But I think he's telling them much more than that. God is showing them, the nation Israel, and through their ancestor Jacob, that they both had the same goal in mind. They both were headed to the promised land. They both were headed back to Canaan. And that's the key. 
What God is trying to teach the wandering nation Israel through this story is they must be changed just like Jacob in order to enter the promised land. What he is trying to teach Jacob through this encounter is he must be changed before he can enter the promised land. What he is actually trying to teach us thousands of years later through this same text is that you and I must be changed before we enter the promised land. Before we enter God's resting place. Whatever euphemism you want to use, before we enter heaven, before we enter God's presence eternally, you cannot go in as you are. You have to be changed. And that change begins with an encounter with God. That change begins with Jacob, with Israel, and with us by an encounter with the living God. Some believe that this struggle in these ten verses is actually Jacob's conversion experience. That can be debated. But what is clear is that Jacob is on his way to the promised land and he has an encounter with God. Jacob is alone on the north side of the Jabbok River and he literally is knocked off his feet by a mysterious man that he later comes to understand is God himself. The man reveals his identity in verse 28 when he says, You have striven with God. And we later see that Jacob understands this and acknowledges this by the name of the place, Peniel, meaning the face of God. I have seen God face to face, he says. 700 years later, the prophet Hosea identifies this, this man as an angel in chapter 12 of his prophecy. Perhaps this is another appearance of the angel of the Lord that we've seen before in Genesis, a pre-incarnate Christ. That's not necessarily clear, but what is clear is that while Jacob is on his way to the promised land, he encounters God. He is confronted by God. And God initiates a struggle. A night-long struggle. An application question is just, just begs to be asked here. As you sit here today, have you had an encounter with God? Let me put it a different way. Let me put it in the context of, of Genesis 32. Has God literally knocked you off your feet? I'm not talking about a morning devotion in your jammies with the morning sun on your back and a fresh cup of coffee in your right hand. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about God confronting you in all your sinfulness. Confronting you and wrestling with you until your strength is gone, until you get to the end of your strength. Until you realize your weakness and God's sufficiency. Until you realize your sinfulness and his holiness. Because that's what's happening here. Some have asked how Jacob could wrestle God to a draw. It seems to indicate that, doesn't it? I think Gustav Doré, one of my favorite artists in our picture here, represents the answer pretty well. 
if you look at this depiction of this, I think he gets it right. Here we see Jacob struggling with all his might, and the angel doesn't seem to be struggling. I mean, what we have to remember is when we read things like this and we are tempted to think, my goodness, Jacob struggles with God to a draw. We really have to rethink our theology. You know, we're going through Second Thessalonians back in Sunday school, and we're going to get to a point where he, uh, Paul is telling the believers there, the, the oppressed, persecuted believers in, in Thessalonica, about the second coming, Christ's coming, and, and the satanic forces are on the march. And you know how Paul describes Christ's victory? It's really beautiful. He says, and he will overthrow them with the breath of his mouth. The breath of his mouth. You cannot read this knowing that and think that Jacob wrestled God to a draw. I think Andre, uh, Andre Dory, Gustav Dory got it right here. God is wrestling with him to do something for a purpose. See, through this all-night struggle, God allowed Jacob to do what he always did, strive alone try to win by himself, try to win by his wits, by his cunning, overcome by his own power, be self-reliant, think, I can do this, I got this, I can win this. I think that's what God was allowing Jacob to go through and struggle with. What we have to recognize here is Jacob wasn't laying hold of God to gain something from him as much as God was laying hold of Jacob in order to confront him with his sin. Namely, to bring Jacob to the end, finally to the end of his self-dependence. Because that's who Jacob was. That's what we've seen for the past number of chapters in Jacob, isn't it? A total self-dependence. All his life, Jacob had been struggling and scheming and deceitfully getting things. Doing it his way, I got this. From Esau and the birthright to his father Isaac and the blessing to Laban with his riches. And here again to Esau. I'll pray, I'll send gifts, I'll seem humble. I got this. Jacob thought that the struggle was out here when God was telling him, no, it's in here. Jacob was his own adversary, self-dependent, self-reliant, self-sufficient. J.I. Packer, in Knowing God, takes a moment to reflect on this passage and he writes this. That night, as Jacob stood alone by the Jabbok River, God met him. There were hours of desperate, agonized conflict, spiritual and, as it seems to Jacob, physical also. As he struggled, he grew more and more conscious, conscience, conscious of his own state, utterly helpless and without God, utterly hopeless. He had beforehand been self-reliant, 
believing himself to be more than a match for anything that might come. But now he felt his complete inability to handle things. He knew with blinding, blazing certainty that he would never again, never again should he dare to trust himself or look after himself and carve his own identity. Never again dare he live by his own wits. Isn't that the lesson that God wants for the nation Israel wandering in the desert on their way to the promised land? Nation Israel, you're not going to conquer the promised land by your own strength. But rather, the victory is going to come by my strength, by believing in me, by trusting in me. Isn't that what God is trying to teach you and me as we head towards eternity? You'll never gain entry into God's paradise by your own strength. You'll never get into heaven by your own power, by your own wits, but only by depending on Christ Jesus. Because we're so tempted to depend on ourselves. That's our default wiring. I got this. I can do this. I I can do enough good. I can be nice enough. I can smile enough. L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, wrote this, Man is basically good, but man can act badly. How's that sound to you? Intellectually, we know it's wrong. But that's our heart language. That's our heart language. I'm... I'm pretty good. That's how we function in the world. That's how we approach even our our religiosity. That's the natural dialogue of our hearts. It's a natural dialogue from Rousseau all the way through Steve Jobs. They said it the same way. To To the degree that you believe that, that you're good, Uh, sometimes you can act badly. You will live a life like Jacob. Self-reliant, self-striving, independent, and you'll be seeking to save yourself. But Scripture says something quite counterintuitive to our hearts, doesn't it? That's the... That's the brazenness of Scripture when we read it. It says things like we all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. We all sin. I mean, Paul takes great pains to, to paste together Psalms in the beginning, in the middle of chapter 3, where he says, no one does good, not even one. The prophet Isaiah in his chapter 53, verse 3 says, Everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. And Paul again says, Those controlled by this sinful nature cannot please God. Now, if you hear that, and there's not something in you that goes, What? You mean, 
You mean there's nothing I can do to please God in and of myself? In other words, Scripture is telling us counterintuitively that man is basically bad and in his natural self cannot please God. Cannot please God. There is no way you can uphold God's law. We think we can be good enough. Scripture says you can never, ever, ever be good enough. But there was one person who was good enough. And that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you have to soak yourself in the scriptures that tell you that you are sinful in order to really, really appreciate what Christ did for you. Otherwise, it'll just be another, I think I heard somebody pray, another, you know, um, intellectual belief. And it won't sink from here to here. It won't sink from here to here that you actually can't uphold the law. But Jesus Christ, in his life, lived perfectly. That means that everything that he did was motivated not to get something from God, but to just please his heavenly Father. That he loved his neighbor as himself perfectly. So much so that he was willing to sacrifice. Isn't, doesn't that show true love in your friendships, in your family, when you sacrifice? When you say, I'm not going to do this, I'm going to be with you. Doesn't that show true love? And God loved us so much in Jesus Christ that he said, you know what? You don't have to pay for your sin by death. I'll pay for it for you. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That he went to the cross and died. We just said it in the Apostles' Creed. I pray, brothers and sisters, that you just don't say that thing rotely. Don't get into the rhythm that you learned it. If you learned it as a child, pause and think. He died for you. He went to hell for you. He experienced an eternity of hell in those three days for you. But he didn't stay dead. He rose on the third day, proving who he was, the Son of God, God himself, and that everything he said and did was, tr- was true. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. Unless you get to the point that you realize that your sin truly needs payment, and it's not just, you know, mistakes, that it really does need payment, that you're not good, but a sinner in need of a Savior, you will always walk in self-reliance like Jacob. Always. And until we have an encounter like Jacob where God grapples with us, 
and we come to the end of ourselves, end of our own power, end of our own strength, end of our own rope, we'll never cling to Christ like Jacob did here, desperately. Jacob struggled with God and in him was developed a desperation from God. He clung to God. Did you see that in verse 26? The man says, let me go. I don't see that as God not being able to get away. I see that as God giving him an opportunity here. Like, like Adam and Eve, where are you? He's giving Jacob an opportunity, as he gives us an opportunity, even right here. He said, let me go, but Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, a lot of people interpret this as Jacob getting the upper hand. Until we remember 2 Thessalonians 2.12, breath of his mouth. Keep that in mind, brothers and sisters. He is all-powerful. What we are seeing here is God giving Jacob a chance to turn to him. What we are seeing here is Jacob being slowly brought to a place of brokenness. We just sang a a hymn. Our introductory hymn was by Horatio Bonar. His brother was a Scottish pastor in the 1800s. His name was Andrew. And he would tell of sheep in the highlands of Scotland that would sometimes wander off among the rocky crags and get trapped on dangerous ledges. You see, they were attracted by the sweet grass and would leap down 10 or 12 feet to these ledges to eat that grass, but they couldn't get back up. A shepherd would allow the helpless sheep to stay there for days and days. Wouldn't rescue it until it became so weak that the sheep couldn't stand up. That was the shepherd's indicator that he would tie a rope around his waist and go down and get the sheep. Someone asked Andrew, why doesn't the shepherd go down right away? And he replied, the sheep are so foolish that they would dash right over the precipice and be killed if the herdsmen didn't wait until their strength was nearly gone. That's what God is doing here in this struggle. Struggles with him all night until Jacob's broken. Like the sheep, he has brought him to a point where his strength is nearly gone and it's at that precise moment that something beautiful happens. Jacob clings. Jacob clings to this man and will not let him go. Did you... Hear our hymn this morning? I will not let you go. He will not let him go until God blesses him. J.I. Packer, again, in Knowing God, is very helpful here. He writes, The nature of Jacob's prevailing with God was simply that he held on to God while God weakened him and wrought in him the spirit of submission and self-distrust. That he had desired God's blessing so much that he clung to God through all his painful humbling till he came low enough for God to raise him up by speaking peace to him and assuring that he need not fear about Esau anymore. 
by daybreak, Jacob was broken. Jacob had gone from seeking blessings everywhere else to seeking God's blessing. Jacob had gone from grasping at the world and everything else in the world to grasping hold of God. Jacob finally is found in the position that God wants each and every one of us. Clinging in desperation to God. Vance Havner is famous for saying the tragedy of our time is the situation is desperate, but the saints are not. And that is what Christ ultimately wants in each one of us, a desperation for him. And we don't like those words. Pastor, I don't like being desperate for anything or anyone. That, that's weak. It doesn't sound good to my ears. I'm desperate. But that's the only attitude with which you can cross over into the promised land with. The Apostle Paul takes the first chapters of the book of Romans to make a case that we're all in Jacob's position, between a rock and a hard place, laying awake the night before a certain death, that sin is so all-encompassing in our life that he writes, Paul writes this, I don't understand what I do. That which I want to do, I don't do. And that which I hate, the sin that I hate, I keep doing. I can relate to that. Can you relate to that? That's the rock in the hard place I'm in. He finally gets to the place where he cries out, and this is Paul in chapter 7. Who will rescue me from this body of death? He cries out. Have you gotten to that place yet in your life? Have you gotten to that broken place where you say, I can't do this? Unless you and I are changed from self-reliant self-saviors to people who desperately cling to Christ... You'll never cross into the promised land. That's the change we see in Jacob. He becomes desperate and clings to God. The image of of Jacob clinging to God in desperation is a good image. Finally, Jacob is desperate for God. And that's when God changes him. That's when the change happens. When you're broken, when you're desperate, that's when he changes you. D.A. Alder, in his book, Leading with a Limp, writes this. We see this in this account, Jacob, the promise that if we open ourselves to meet God, we will not come out of this encounter the same. We will walk a new path with an unpredictable gate. If you have encountered the living God and you're sitting here, I think you know you're not the same. You're changed. Mandatorily. 
And we see that in Jacob's change of his name. When, when God changes you, it's not just a change of heart that you don't see. It's also something that you see. And we see that in a couple ways in Jacob here. His name is changed from Jacob to Israel. Whenever there's a name change in Scripture, it's really signifying that there's a, a character change going on. Jacob is changed from his name meaning cheater and deceiver and heel grabber to one who strives after God. One from who is desperate for what the world has to offer to one who is desperate for what God can give him. The application here is pretty simple. When Christ enters your life, you will be changed. That inward change of heart will always be seen, though, externally. We see that almost instantly here with Jacob, with the name change. But his character changes. He goes from coward to courage. Remember his plan? He's going to send all his family ahead of him and he and Rachel and his favored son, Jacob, were going to follow behind. Okay, so Esau can, can kill everyone else until they get to him. And then we see in chapter 33 that he goes out ahead of everybody, bowing and bowing and bowing from cowardice to courage, from hubris to humility. And anyone who calls, who clings to Christ alone for salvation will have similar changes in their life. Your life will change. Paul talks about this change in terms of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Your love for people grows. Your joy for life grows. Your peace, despite the circumstances, grows. Your patience with others grows. Your kindness towards the unlovable the goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and more self-control. These things are, are seen in your life because your heart has been changed. As obvious as a name change, faith displays itself in Christ. Faith will display itself in your life, but not perfectly. And that's the final point. Remember, God dislocated his hip, right? And he walked with a limp. He walked with a limp into the promised land. Isn't that poetic? He walked with a limp into the promised land. How true once you give your life to Christ. I don't want to burst anybody's bubble here. But, but your life won't become perfect. It won't. You'll walk with a limp the rest of your life. God does not promise your marriage will instantly become better, your career will take off, your children will start obeying, your financial woes will go away, your health will be renewed, school will become easier, fill in the blank. Because that's not what the gospel is about. Yes, by God's grace, those things do get better. But that's not what primarily the gospel is about. You're not promised that you'll be perfected either. All you have to do is look at Jacob in the very next chapter and see this. He lies to Esau to his face. Yep, I'm going to follow you. I'll be right behind you. Plants his home somewhere else. I think it's because he still fears his brother. He was walking toward the promised land with a limp. And you too will see your old nature pop up 
in your walk with Christ. Anger will rise up when you least expect it. Selfishness, you'll grasp hold of things with white knuckles. Frustration will be seen. Envy will still be green. But by God's grace, less and less. But we'll always walk with a limp. All the way to the promised land. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Spirit, change us. Convict us. Rebuke us. Train us through this word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.